Welcome to the NJ Criminal Podcast. Welcome back to New Jersey Criminal Podcast. Joining me today is George Anastasia. George is a former Philadelphia Inquirer investigative reporter and an expert on organized crime in the American Mafia, having covered the mob in Philly and South Jersey for over 50 years. George is a renowned author and has been named by 60 Minutes as one of the most respected crime reporters in the country. He was once even targeted for death by then Philadelphia crime boss John Stanfa. George, thanks so much for joining me. No, thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. So I want to uh, jump right in and, uh, first of all, just ask you to the extent that you can, give our listeners kind of an overview of the, uh, of the five families and then maybe just a, a quick kind of history of the mob in Philly. Sure. I mean, and it's it interesting because I think the mob, the mafia, Cosa Nostra, is, is a lesser player than it was, say, 20 years ago. I mean, the five families in New York, the Colombo, uh, uh, Gambino, Genovese, Lucchese, and Bonanno families are, are still major players in New York City, but um, they aren't the monolithic organizations that they were. I, 20, maybe 30 years ago. And I think part of the reason for that is law enforcement has very effectively attacked uh, traditional organized crime with the RICO laws, with electronic surveillance, with uh, WITSEC and cooperating witnesses. It's it's really kind of come apart. Um, and, I, you know, I say this when I talk to different people. If I were a reporter starting out right now, um, I don't think I would carve out a beat covering Cosa Nostra. I think the, the new story is the drug underworld or terrorism. And, uh, you know, that's where it is right now. But that being said, the, the five families in New York, I think overall there's probably 26 families around the country. Five families in New York have always been the dominant families. Uh, if you will, that's the major leagues. Philadelphia has been kind of triple A. I mean, Philadelphia has always been associated with New York. Um, Philadelphia, its, its status was enhanced in the 1970s with the coming of casino gambling to Atlantic City. Because Atlantic City was always part of the Philadelphia uh, organization and all of a sudden Atlantic City was something of value so that kind of enhanced the, the Philadelphia crime family's position but it also generated a lot of violence and led to I, I would argue the demise of the Philadelphia crime family and that's where we are today the Philadelphia crime family <clears throat> probably is a, a shadow of what it was even 20 years ago it's they're probably 20 25 members right now they're not major players um, in its heyday, there might have been 70 or 80 made members, uh, and it's just come undone. And, and I, be, I benefited from the fact that I was able to cover it at a time when this was all happening. And mm -hmm. I was working at a newspaper, The Inquirer, that at that particular time had a lot of resources. And basically, they just gave me my head. Go do what you got to do. Find the stories. And it, it was just serendipitous. It came at a very good time, and I was able to carve out a, a beat and write about a, a fascinating period of history in organized crime and using Philadelphia as the hook. And I think what happened in Philadelphia in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the demise of that organization, uh, was pretty much indicative of what was happening to crime families uh, all over the country. I've heard you use the phrase disorganized crime. Was yeah. it always that way in Philadelphia, or did that happen more recently? I think the disorganized crime, that began with the 1980 murder of Angelo Bruno. 
and that set the Philadelphia crime family kind of careening out of control. Um, it was, you know, prior to that, and this is interesting from a law enforcement, a law enforcement perspective. Prior to that, I think it was organized crime and disorganized law enforcement. Uh, but the tables turned with, um, I guess, more sophisticated approach with cooperation between the feds and the state and the, and the city and the, the wanton, the wanton violence in Philadelphia, uh, created a need for law enforcement to get very serious about what they were doing. I'm talking about in the post-Bruno era. Right, so Bruno, Bruno was the was boss killed. for what, over 20 years? Bruno was the boss from 1959 to 1980, mm -hmm. and he was killed in March of 1980, and that sent the family careening out of control. Then you had an internecine power struggle, a lot of violence, and ultimately, uh, within, I guess within two years, Nicky Scarfo rose to the top. Scarfo was a psychopath. Scarfo mm -hmm. should have never been a boss. Um, but, you know, it was one of those right place, right time kind of things. And he took over the crime family in 81. He was based in Atlantic City. And, you know, there's a lot a lot been said about Angelo Bruno, the docile Don, you know. The, uh, he was the docile Don only in comparison to what came after him. Bruno could be ruthless. Uh, Bruno ruled with an iron fist, but Bruno covered the iron fist with a velvet glove. Scarfo saw no need for the glove. I mean, Scarfo was just flat out a, a, a crazy man, a psychopath, and violence was his calling card, where with Bruno, violence might have been the negotiating tool of last resort. If everything else failed, somebody might get whacked. Once Scarfo took over, if you screw up, you're a dead man, and that destabilized the organization. So, and I'm sure it made the organization a major focus of law enforcement. Well, sure, because you had drive-by shootings, you had guys running around with guns uh, looking to kill one another, and, and that created, uh, um, it, it forced cooperation. So I think for the first time I ever saw it, the, the city police, the state police, and the FBI were all cooperating, because for the longest time, the FBI was like the 500-pound gorilla, and the state police and the, and the city police didn't want to deal with them because the FBI knew everything and they didn't want to hear from anybody else and they were in charge and blah 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 you know that kind of stuff in law enforcement this created a situation where everybody had to cooperate because there were you know there was an infamous uh shooting on the schuylkill expressway in the middle of rush hour traffic that kind of stuff it's 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 impacting the public it's that old kind of uh attitude of you know they don't bother me i don't bother them who cares what the mob's doing well that changed when people started to see bodies dropping in the streets and gunfire in their neighborhoods and that put pressure on law enforcement. And then it kind of coalesced with, if, if you remember, I mean, the way things played out, the RICO law came into place in the 70s. Electronic surveillance got really high-tech, very sophisticated. And WITSEC became, a, a you know, witness protection, a, a way for these guys to cooperate and, and to live to tell the story. And Philadelphia, at one point, per capita, had more cooperating made guys than any other mob family in America. It was a very dysfunctional family. It was kind of the Simpsons of the underworld. Uh, but it also was, I think, indicative of how law enforcement was able to undermine what, what for a long time was the secret society and this powerful monolithic organization. It just started to come apart. And another another factor in all of this, and, and I mention this all the time, being an Italian-American, the second and third generation Italian-Americans the best and the brightest are now doctors, lawyers, and educators. And, and by the 1970s and 1980s, the mob is scraping the bottom of the gene pool. You know, the guys that are getting involved in organized crime uh, are not as smart, not as sophisticated as the guys in, this, in the 40s and 50s. And, 
And you can make an argument that those guys, a guy like Angelo Bruno, an intelligent guy, when he comes to America as an immigrant, doesn't have the same opportunities that me as a second generation Sicilian American had. So Bruno follows the path uh, that's going to get him some power and influence, and it's organized crime. By the, the time I'm of age, that's not an that's not an avenue that we need to pursue anymore. So the guys that were pursuing it were the thugs, and Scarfa was an example of that. What led to Stanfa taking over for Scarfa? Stanfa, that that was almost an aberration. Stanfa was born and raised in Sicily, came to America uh, as an adult, was already a made guy in in Sicily. Um, had connections in New York to the Gambino family, came down to Philadelphia with an introduction to Bruno. Um, you know, this is my friend John Stafford, what can you do for him? And Stafford became a, a, a lesser player in the Bruno organization, but Stafford was the driver on the night Bruno was killed. He drove Bruno home. And a lot of people believe Stafford was part of that conspiracy. So, uh, I mean, it's almost a soap opera. Stafford and, and all the guys, there were four or five guys involved in the Bruno hit. Four of them turn up dead in the aftermath. It was a, a an underworld uh, double cross. The guys that, that killed Bruno, Tony Bananas Caponegro, the consigliere, thought he had the okay from New York. He didn't. Uh, the Genovese family set him up, uh, lied to him. So Caponegro turns up dead. Two or three other guys turn up dead. And Stanford goes on the run. Stanford disappears. And for, I guess, a year and a half, He's he's on the run. He finally they find him at a pizzeria down in Maryland, connected to the Gambino family, and he gets arrested and he's jailed, sent to jail for eight years for perjury, lied to a grand jury for the Bruno investigation, and Stanford basically sits out the whole bloody Scarfo era, or else he would have been a dead man if he was on the streets. So he sits. He's, he's a guest of the federal government. Now he comes out in 1989, I think. Scarfo's been indicted and is in jail, and the guys in New York say to Stanford, listen, go back to Philadelphia, try to put that family back together. And I remember people talking about this. I remember writing about it. How, you know, the Philadelphia's going to go back to the old ways. This is a Sicilian mob boss, old school, blah, blah, blah. Stanford, you know, spoke with a Sicilian accent and came from Sicily, but he was more Scarfo than he was Bruno. He was also a really violent guy. And the destabilization of the crime family continued right up and through uh, the 1990s. And the other element that was in play at that point was there was always a cooperator. And more more to the point, there was always a wire being run. Uh, there was body wires, uh, phone taps, uh, all kind of electronic surveillance. And during the Stanford era, this was, was fascinating to me. It's almost inside baseball. During the Stanford era, the FBI got permission to bug a lawyer's office, Salavina, Stanford's lawyer in Camden, New Jersey. They got permission to bug the office. Now that's that's, that's unbelievable. That. Yeah, bugging a lawyer's office. So they they go to the judge and they say, "We believe John Stanford, the mob boss, is using the shield of lawyer-client to hold mob meetings in this office in Camden." And they document different mob guys coming down from New York and and. Uh, Scranton, Wilkesboro, and meeting with Stanford. And they get permission to bug a room in the lawyer's office. And you know how it works. After, after 30 days, they got to go back to the judge, and they say, here's what we've gotten. And we want to expand the bug to the entire suite of offices. And they keep going back to the judge every 30 days 
with documentation of here's what's going on. It's not the lawyer. It's the mob boss and members of different crime families meeting in the lawyer's office. And that bug was in place for two years. Uh, one of the books I wrote was called The Goodfellow Tapes because it was based on the bugging of that office. It was a, a fascinating, I think at the time it was probably the most expensive. It was over a half million dollars the Fed spent bugging that office and then listening and you know minimizing and all of that. But it was thousands of tapes of John Stanford and different mob figures from New York and Philadelphia. And this is in the midst of a mob war in Philadelphia where Stanford organization is fighting the Joey Molina organization. And, and there's all kind of, I mean, as a, as a writer, <laughs> it was like manna from heaven. You, you can't make it up. <laughs> Every when, day you had something to write about. Yeah, but Stanford yeah, didn't I, like that, I take it, right? No, not at all. But I mean, from, from my perspective, when you're writing about true crime and when you write books or even newspapers, you never have dialogue. Well, this was dialogue. It was mm-hmm. actual dialogue. And it, it was um, probably the most fascinating investigation I've ever covered. And, and uh, Stanford and his organization was eventually brought down because of the tapes. I mean, that's one of the things that <laughs> covering these guys and, and as, as law enforcement got more sophisticated and things evolved, one of the things I saw in all the racketeering trials, 1980s to the present, was uh, electronic surveillance. And defense attorneys would say to me, you know, you get a, a cooperating mob figure up on the witness stand, you can beat them up. Why, you know, are you, are you telling the truth now? You lied here, you lied then, you know, you killed six people, blah, blah, blah. You can attack their credibility and maybe you win some points with the jury. What you can't cross-examine is a tape. So when there's a tape of John Stanford and Sergio Battaglia talking about how they're going to invite Merlino and two guys to this meeting and they're going to put two in the back of his head and then we're going to cut out his tongue and put it in an envelope, send it to his wife. I mean, what are they supposed to do with that? What's a defense attorney to do with that? And the jury's sitting there like they think they're watching The Sopranos. And, right. and I saw that again and again and again. The Philadelphia crime family from the 80s through the 2000s was probably the most recorded crime family in America. It, whether it's a, a room bug, a uh, telephone bugs or guys wearing body wires. It was just amazing. And, and that's why the family, in large part, came undone. The other thing is, even to this day, they can't stop talking. There was, I think two or three years ago, there was a making ceremony in Philadelphia where one of the guys was a cooperator, wore a body wire to his own making ceremony. I mean, it's unheard of. I think in America, in there's been four examples of the feds recording making ceremonies. That's the secret ceremony where guys get initiated. Mm-hmm. There was one in Medford, Massachusetts. There was one in, in Canada, I think in Montreal or Toronto. And there, two others were Philadelphia guys wearing body wires to their own ceremony. It says a lot about you know how the Philadelphia family has come undone. Also says a lot about law enforcement and how sophisticated and good they've gotten at, at putting this stuff together. So. Right, and, and having something on that guy that's going to... Encourage him to flip. Well, yeah, and it, when, once it happens once, then guys are, that are out on the streets, and this was indicative of the Scarfo era. Once everybody knew Scarfo was a maniac, and if you screw up, you're going to get killed. Now, one guy cooperates and manages to get a pretty good deal from the government. Now, two other guys are saying, well, yeah, you know, if I get jammed up, that's what I'm doing. And that's another thing, you know, the, the mafia, maybe. Maybe in the 40s and 50s, for a lot of these guys, the mafia was a way of life. Guys really bought into that whole men of honor nonsense, some of them. By the 1970s, 1980s, the mafia became a way to make money. 
it was a business. So these guys that got initiated in the 70s and 80s, when they get jammed up and they're looking at RICO in 20 years, it's not about omerta, the code of silence, and honor and loyalty. It's about uh, each man for himself. Yeah, it's a business. How do I, how do I cut my losses? Right. And right. they cut their losses by cooperating. And they've managed to, you know, live to tell the story. Guys are all over the country now in, in Witsec. A lot of them are not happy about it. I talk to a guy named Nick Caramondi all the time. I, the guy I wrote the first book about. He was one of the first cooperators in the Scarfo era. If, if Caramondi could undo it all and come back to South Philadelphia, he'd do it tomorrow. I mean, he hates the life that he's in. He's living in a trailer park in middle America. He's a nobody. Mm-hmm. And when he was a wise guy in South Philly, you know, he was he was king of the world. Right. He misses that. And he gave that all up because he thought Scarfo was going to kill him and he decided to cooperate. Stick around for the next segment in this conversation. This podcast is not a source of legal advice. No two legal cases are the same. Contact an attorney if you require legal assistance. <laughs>